Hey there, and welcome to episode 30 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five O podcast. I am your groovy and hip host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. I've got two more th- season three episodes for you episode seven, Force of Waves, and episode eight, The Reunion. I am recording this at the end of August. I'm doing it in the morning because I had the idea to beat the heat, but unfortunately the competitive mowing league in my neighborhood also had the same idea. So you're going to hear lawnmowers in the background. I'm sorry. There's just nothing I can do about that. Not until it snows. Also, I'm just going to give a a mild warning when it comes to both of these episodes, particularly if you haven't watched them, as they deal with mental illness and PTSD. In Force of Waves, it doesn't come until close to the end of the episode, and I actually won't be talking about it too much, but the reunion deals heavily with PTSD and the trauma of war, and so I will be talking about that a lot. So if you find that sort of thing upsetting, brace yourself accordingly. Let's go to Hawaii. Season 3, Episode 7, Force of Waves. Air date October 26, 1970. Directed by Paul Krasny. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-0. Story by Mark Rogers. This is his third of three episodes. And teleplay by Mark Rogers and Eric Bersavisi. This is his third of 12 episodes. While Cal hoists Neil to the top of a mast to fix a light, Clark Sloan dances with his wife Maria at a nearby yacht party. When Sloan sees Steve arrive, he passes Maria off to his lawyer, Richard Fairburn, and goes to meet him. Sloan wants to talk about gambling, and the two of them get on Sloan's boat to go out to his yacht. As Steve stands on the bow and Sloan at the helm, the boat explodes. Cal jumps in and saves Steve, but Sloan is dead. Steve's last instruction before being whisked off in an ambulance is for Dano to figure this out. Cal says he saw the whole thing and says it's unusual because diesel engines don't blow up like that. Dano talks to Maria Sloan and Richard Fairburn. Maria would have normally been on the boat with him and asked to go, but he said no. She could have been killed too. Steve has a concussion and a broken right arm, which Dano reminds him of before filling him in on their progress. Che Fong found the remnants of a bomb. Sloan never stood a chance, so it was a good thing that Steve was standing on the bow. And they have a decent timeline of when the bomb would have been planted. With Steve still in the hospital, Dano has the lead. Dano's first stop is to talk to Sloan's ex-wife, Grace, who is not exactly in mourning. She's not surprised someone killed her ex. He had enemies, but they were all afraid of him because he was ruthless when he wanted something. Case in point, in her divorce. He was ruthless then because he wanted Maria. 
About that time, Grace's son Clark Jr. pops out to let his mother know he's leaving for his father's funeral. As Steve is getting ready to be released from the hospital, Danny lets him know how the talk with Grace went. They're checking her out, but he doesn't think she did it, and whatever she felt for her ex-husband, she definitely doesn't take it out on her son. As Steve is being wheeled through the hallway, hospital regulations, Danny mentions that Cal got a speeding ticket for going 80 on the freeway, and since he did save Steve's life, maybe he should fix it for him. Steve agrees, but his mind goes back to the case at hand. He recalls a similar incident on Maui in which a rich businessman with a new younger wife died in a fire. Maybe there's a connection. Steve inherited a boat from a grateful older Chinese man whom he once helped, and the thing wouldn't float in a bathtub. Since he's off work now with his injury, he and Cal are free to start doing the endless repairs it will need to be seaworthy. However, Danny and Chin show up with the Maui case file for Steve to review. Even when he's not working, he's working. That night at Sloan's office building, Neil, you remember him, the mask climber, does a little B&E. He breaks into Sloan's office with the help of a key and starts to open the safe with the provided combination. Unfortunately for everyone involved, he is interrupted by a security guard whom he clobbers. Neil makes a run for it, taking the stairs to the parking garage where his attempt to flee is thwarted by Chin and Danny, who heard the call on the radio. Danny is quite surprised to find Mrs. Maria Sloan in the car with him. Maria won't talk without a lawyer and Fairburn continues to advise her not to speak. In Sloan's office, Danny uses the combo taken from Neil to open the safe. Inside, they find two grand in cash and a letter addressed to whom it may concern. In it is a notarized letter from Maria stating that she makes no claim on her husband's money even in the event of his death. Danny says it's all incriminating, but Fairburn points out that it's not enough to hold her. Danny says they do have enough to hold Neil, and he might say some interesting things. They'll want to talk to Maria again. Before she leaves, she insists that Sloane told her if she gave him five happy years of marriage, he'd tear up the letter and that she did love her husband. Neil is in hock to a gambling syndicate, and he did go to Sloane for money, which might be why Sloane wanted to talk to Steve about gambling. Steve once again brings up the Maui case and says that he found yet another similar case in which a rich Filipino man and his young girlfriend were killed in a boat explosion off Singapore. Steve thinks there's a connection, but he's not sure what. But the good news is that Neil wants to talk. Neil tells Danny that he went to Maria to ask Sloane to help bail him out of his gambling debts. After his death, Maria called and said she still might be able to help. Neil then went over and talked to her and Fairburn about getting into the office to get the cash and the letter. He emphatically tells Danny that he will admit to everything, but not the murder. Cal is driving Steve to his boat, and when he takes a chance on a yellow light, Steve teases him, talking about the speeding ticket that he got. But Cal says he didn't get a speeding ticket. It must be a mistake. Later, while working on the boat, Steve asks Cal about Neil. He said he was surprised to hear that Neil was in jail because Neil is a bit of a coward. He took a bad fall from a mask the previous year and spent months in the hospital. The day of the explosion was the first time he'd been up there since his accident, but he insisted on going to test himself. Maria is arrested and brought in by Kono. Her lawyer is already on the way. In the meantime, Danny drops a bomb. Maria and Neil were married and were still legally married when Sloane proposed to her. Maria says that her husband knew all that, but that it was over between her and Neil. She doesn't love him, but she doesn't want to see him hurt. That's why she was trying to help him get the money. Fairburn arrives and is upset that Danny is questioning Maria without him, but hey, she was read her rights. Danny then happily lays out some facts for him. 
With Sloan dead, Fairburn was about to lose a hundred grand a year job because Maria wouldn't inherit. It would benefit him to get that letter, so he provided Neil with the key and the combination, which makes him an accessory. Danny arrests him and asks if he knows a good lawyer. Meanwhile, Steve catches Cal in a lie. So this is one of those episodes that seems pretty straightforward and then makes a hard ass left. We start with Cal and Neil repairing the light on this mast of this boat because that's what Cal does for a living. He's a boat repairman, I guess. So we see Neil being hoisted up and him nearly falling once and he's shaking the whole time, but he's sticking with it. And from his vantage point, you can see the yacht party happening where Maria is dancing with her husband. And then Sloane sees Steve come up and he passes Maria off to Richard Fairburn. And she insists on going with him at first and he tells her no. He goes to talk to Steve and, and you hear him mention something about gambling and they go out on his little motorboat so he can go to his yacht so they can talk in private. And the whole time, Maria is watching while she's supposed to be dancing with Richard Fairburn. And Richard's kind of watching too, but not really. And of course, the boat explodes. And Cal jumps in and saves Steve, who's floating face down on the water. So thank you, Cal, for that. So he saves Steve, but unfortunately, Sloan can't be saved. So from the very beginning, you're kind of looking at... Maria and Fairburn because their behavior is a little bit suspicious prior to the explosion. But then when the questioning happens after the explosion, there's something a little bit there. It it also kind of looks like Richard has a little more of an interest in Maria than professional. And you're not quite sure if Maria reciprocates that, but he seems to be a little bit handsy and he slips at one point and calls her by her first name instead of Mrs. Sloan. So there's groundwork being laid from the very beginning that these two aren't exactly on the up and up. Meanwhile, you have Cal the hero and poor Neil, who you kind of forget about until the B&E happens. And of course, there's Steve, who's been exploded and nearly drowned because, well, I don't think he's been blown up this season yet, so. And I swear he gets blown up once a season. So he's giving instructions from the hospital gurney because Dano is going to have to be the one in charge taking the lead on this one because they know for a fact he's got a concussion. And then later you see him with a broken arm. And it, the cast is on his right arm and I believe Jack Lord is right-handed. So that's an interesting choice because usually when actors have to pretend to have a broken limb, they tend to break the non-dominant arm. So I just thought that was interesting. But anyway, after Steve gets loaded into the ambulance, Danny talks to Cal because Cal was Cal and Neil both had a excellent vantage point of this explosion. The problem is is that Neil was terrified and clinging to the mast for dear life, but Cal obviously watched it and he did the rescue. By the way, Cal is played by John Vernon. So if you ever wanted to see John Vernon shirtless, this episode is your chance. He's the one that lays the idea that this obviously wasn't accidental because diesel engines don't explode like that. And then Chaifong confirms it. And then they do end up with a timeline for when this person would have planted the bomb because they figure that Maria and her husband took the boat to this yacht party. So it was after they arrived at the party that the bomb was planted because it obviously didn't explode when she was on it. Because I guess the way it was rigged is that once the diesel heated up to a certain temperature, it would blow. So they have a basic timeline. And so what does Danny do first? He goes and he talks to the ex-wife. You know, ex-wives don't have to mourn. 
maybe I should have said ex-widow. I'm sorry to disturb you, Mrs. Sloan. Oh, you're not disturbing me at all. Would you like a drink? No, thanks. Too early, huh? Not for me. Not anymore. May he rest in peace. You don't seem very surprised. Surprised? By what? Clark getting killed? Murdered. Not really. The only thing that puzzles me is why it took so long. Who wanted him dead? You mean other than me? Sure, Clark had enemies. And they were all terrified of him. Why? Oh, he could be ruthless. A lot of people thought he was ruthless when he divorced you. And they should have seen it from the inside. When Clark wanted something, there was no stopping him. And he really wanted her. I love her. It makes me sad that I did not get married in my younger years just so I could get divorced, just so I could be this kind of ex-wife because she is blatant in her lack of mourning. She is pretty much like, he screwed me over. Good riddance. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. And she does give some useful information in saying that yes, he had business enemies. And we do get to see Clark Jr. What's really interesting about that scene when Clark Jr. comes out, first of all, his name's Clark Jr., poor child. Danny and Grace Sloan are out at the pool, which I, they use this house all of the time for location shots. And I really want this house, but neither here nor there. They're out at the pool. Clark Jr. comes out in a suit and tie to let his mom know he's going. And she's like, all right, buddy, I'll see you later. And he leaves. Now you can understand her not being upset, but Clark Jr. doesn't exactly seem to be too upset that his father is dead. So apparently he's perfectly cool with his dad blowing sky high. I guess the father-son relationship wasn't that great. Or the acting direction was a little suspect. I prefer the former, really. Anyway, Grace Sloan turns out to be a bust. And we kind of knew that. Of course, Danny is keeping Steve filled in, so he visits him in the hospital to let him know about the bomb first. But then he also reminds Steve, you have a concussion and a broken arm, so you're not working. Then when it comes to leaving the hospital and he's still filling him in on the case, the nurse makes him use the wheelchair because it's regulations, which is really kind of cute. Who's that for? It's for you, Mr. McGarrett. No, thanks, nurse. No, I can walk just fine. Hospital regulations to the front door. Come on. Regulations. And then later, Danny finds Steve at the office and he says he's just doing some reading, but he reminds him that the doctor said fresh air and sunshine and no work. So even though Steve is not working, he's still working. But on the other hand, Danny is also playing nursemaid a little bit and reminding him that he doesn't have to work or concern himself, that he can relax and, and heal. So it's really kind of cute, especially after we watched the ransom in which Kono got the crap kicked out of him and we got to see how much the team rallied around Kono and how much the team loves Kono. It's nice to see the, that kind of reciprocated again with Danny fussing over Steve a little bit. But of course, Steve comes up with this connection or possible connection to this Maui fire because it's the same kind of scenario in that a rich businessman was killed and the rich businessman had recently acquired a young mail-order bride which was all the rage back in the day. And Steve feels that there might be a similarity there. And then later through his readings, he finds another case that's similar. And this one with a Filipino businessman and a young girlfriend that were blown up in the boat. In this case, in the Maui case, the young wife inherited 
In this case, the young girlfriend was also killed, but he's sensing there's kind of a pattern there, but he's not exactly sure what it is yet. And that's kind of nagging at him throughout the episode in the back of his head, even while he's working on this boat with cows. So because he's not at work officially, he's still being kept up to date and stuff. He now has time to work on this really, really unfortunate looking boat with Cal. And so we do get to see a little bit of his off-duty life. Most importantly, because he is off-duty for pretty much the entirety of this episode, we get my favorite thing which is Steve's off-duty wardrobe. We are talking about a beautiful array of ascots. He was wearing like an all-white combo at one point with a blue ascot. There's a patterned ascot. He was wearing green and yellow. I mean, like we got the full array of Steve wardrobe in this episode. It is absolutely beautiful. I'm only gonna post a few pictures of it up on the blog because I it took me forever to get through this. I kept screen capping his outfits. You absolutely have to see some of these outfits. They're just, watch the episode for the outfits. If you don't have any interest in this episode whatsoever, watch it for the outfits. Just put it on mute and watch it go. He's beautiful. Anyway, so we see him working off duty a lot with Cal. And Cal is a very likable guy. And you know because he saved Steve's life and because we're seeing him so much, he's gonna play key with him at some point. And we think that maybe that key will be with Neil because Neil gets busted breaking and entering into Sloane's office. And when you first see him show up, you're like, why the hell is he here? Why would he be breaking in? But he was a witness to the murder. So you think, well, maybe he had something to do with it. So Neil gets busted by the security guard. He knocks the security guard out. He tries to take the elevator, but the elevator, the, the security guard had locked the elevator to the floor. So he has to go down the, the stairs. He gets down to the parking garage and gets in his car and attempts to escape. Danny and Chen hear the call and end up blocking him. And when they go to the car, they get him out and you see, oh, hey, Maria Sloan was like laying down on the front passenger seat so you couldn't see her. Oh, this is a very interesting twist. And of course they take her to the office. Richard Fairburn shows up and it's very appropriate. This lawyer is named Dick because he is one. And they find a letter saying that Maria has no claim to any of the money. And she insists that she loves her husband. And of course they have to release her because Richard Fairburn is as much of a dick as he is. He is a decent lawyer and he knows what he's doing. Later, they obviously get the information from Neil. They get a statement from Neil. And Neil is willing to fast up to everything but the murder. Pieces are starting to fit together. And actually, Danny says this. And he says that the, there are pieces coming together, but they don't all fit. Because he was in hock to a gambling syndicate. He went to Sloan for money to help bail him out. And that would be why Sloan would talk to Steve about gambling. Because they couldn't figure out why Sloan wanted to talk to Steve at the beginning. And he, they didn't know what he would have to do with gambling. Because winners don't complain. I think that's what Danny said. So they have all of these pieces and Steve is still trying to figure out if this ties in with the Maui and the Singapore case, but it's looking clear that Maria is helping Neil for some reason. So we don't get to see Kono very much in this episode, which makes sense because in the previous episode he was being held hostage and had the crap beaten out of him. You'd want him to ease back into his work life, but he does get to arrest Maria and bring her in. And that's when we get Danny to drop that bomb on us that, oh, hey, Maria and Neil were married and were still legally married when Clark Stallone proposed to her. But she swears that Clark knew all about that and 
that yes, she was facilitating getting Neil this money because she doesn't love him anymore, but she does care about him and she doesn't want to see him hurt. So that was the whole point of them breaking in was to get that money for Neil. And of course, Richard Fairburn shows up and he's pissy about the questioning and Danny gets the ultimate satisfaction of laying out the facts for him about his role in this. Tell me, Mr. Fairburn. You worked for Clark Sloan for three years now, is that right? What is my working for Clark Sloan got to do with this? And you made in excess of $100,000 a year. Quite a jump over uh, what you were making before. I make a lot of money. So what? When you and Maria left the dock after Sloan was murdered, you knew at least two things. You lost a client worth more than $100,000 a year. Maria was not going to inherit anything unless something was done with that piece of paper. You know what you're letting yourself in for. Last night, Neil Porter picked Maria up and took her to Clark Sloan's office. He had a key to the office and a piece of paper upon which was written the combination of the safe. Just what are you trying to insinuate? You had a key, and you know the combination of the safe, Counselor. Look, I don't know what that moron told you, but he was just trying to protect himself. Would you mind uh, showing me your key? <laughs> I don't have to. No, well, that's not necessary. The, uh... Lab compared these numbers 381257 with the writ of habeas corpus that you filed on uh, April 16, 1967. The handwriting is identical. All right, Williams. I gave Porter the combination to Sloan safe. But Sloan was going to give him the money anyway. Maria wanted Porter to have the money. He had to have it. You know that already. Foolish of me, I know, but uh, when Maria asked me, how can I refuse? Easy. You're under arrest, Fairburn. And you're out of your mind. On what charge? Conspiracy to defraud. Accomplice to breaking and entering just for openers. Want to call a good liar? So in an attempt not to lose his job and not to lose that fat paycheck, he goes along with Neil breaking and entering. He can get some of that cash to tide over the gambling syndicate. They can get the letter that Maria had written, rip that up, and she'll inherit. And it, they'll be able to take care of the rest of Neil's stats, and then he'll be able to continue having his salary. And it is very satisfying to finally watch this gnat of a person get his comeuppance because he wasn't just wasn't clever enough for that. But there is still the matter of, did Neil blow up Sloan? Did they hire him? Was that part of their deal? So Steve talks to Cal about Neil, and that's when Cal tells him that Neil is too much of a coward because he fell from the mast, and that was the first time he had gone up on the mast since that fall and he was trying to prove himself. So Neil really doesn't look likely. So we're still left with that question. But another great way, thing that they did with this episode is that they did plant little bits about Cal. And that first bit is him denying the speeding ticket. And you kind of want to believe Cal that, oh, they must have made a mistake. And you kind of think, okay, maybe the, the cop that gave him the ticket, maybe it was actually Neil that had his car and was racing somewhere and gave him a phony license or something. You kind of think that 
you're willing to think that because Cal is a great guy. He saves Steve. He's funny. He's working on Steve's boat with him. And then he and Steve are out working on this boat and Cal's wife shows up. Steve's talking about eventually he's going to get this boat fixed up well enough that he can take a cruise to Maui. And Cal says something to the effect that he hadn't been to Maui in 10 years. And his wife gives him this really strange look, but quickly covers it and says, well, I better let you guys go. But of course it's Steve, so he catches this look. Now Steve's wheels are turning in a different direction, so he gets a hold of the police officer that gave Cal the ticket. The police officer knows Cal, so he knows that was who he gave that ticket to. So Steve asks for a copy of the ticket. He says Cal lost it. And he's really disturbed that his friend is lying to him. Lied to him about Maui, lied to him about this speeding ticket. But then we see in a scene with Cal and his wife, he's just sitting on the deck staring out into nothingness after dinner. And she comes out and talks to him and she says, why did you tell Steve that you hadn't been to Maui in 10 years? You were there in 1967. You were working on somebody's boat for a week. And he's like, oh, really? I I don't remember that. I guess I forgot. Which is curious. You'd think you'd remember working there for a week. But maybe he was like, oh, I thought it was a different week or thought it was 10 years ago. There doesn't seem to be anything intentionally deceptive about Cal. Like, you just think, well, he forgot. And now you're thinking, oh, crap, he's having memory problems. Maybe Neil did something and he just doesn't remember or something like that. I mean, you're, you're really, you're on Cal's side. You, you know there's something going on with him, but you don't want to think the worst of him. Steve, I think, is the same way. And he goes and he talks to Neil in, in jail. And it's actually a really sweet scene in a sense because he asks about the day of the explosion. And Neil talks about going up and he's obviously very upset. It's very triggering for him. It makes him think of his accident. There was a burned out light on the mainmast of Mr. Singler's boat. I said I'd fix it. Cal was going to help me because... Because he knew I was afraid. But you were not Neil. All the way. It kind of gives him a little bit of a boost, and that's when we find out the key piece of information. While they were working on this boat, Cal was gone for a period of time, saying he was calling his wife, but it's the perfect amount of time and the perfect period of time that fits in the timeline when the bomb would have been planted. So now we're trying to figure out why Cal might have done this, because suddenly the evidence is kind of pointing towards him. And we do a bit of a deep dive into Cal's history, and it turns out that he and his mother and his father, I think he was born in Hong Kong, or he was born in London, living in Hong Kong, something like that. They were living in Hong Kong, and his father sent him and his mother back to London, divorced her so he could marry a younger wife, got rid of them. And his mother, in the next year or two, ended up drowning. And there was no conclusion about whether or not it was accident or suicide. So Kel obviously has some past trauma in his life. And it turns out that it has caused dissociative identity disorder. They don't call it that in the episode. It wasn't called that back then. The doctor they talked to calls it some kind of schizophrenia, I think. But he's basically triggered by seeing rich businessmen, older rich businessmen, divorcing their ex-wives and getting younger wives, especially if there is a kid involved. 
and he's having these blackout episodes as a result. And the only way that 5-0 is going to be able to stop him is by triggering one of these episodes. This guest cast is a blast of its own, so let's take a quick look at them. As I said, Cal Anderson is played by John Vernon. The man has 207 credits. He's probably best known as Dean Vernon Warmer in Animal House, and he also reprised that role in the TV show Delta House. He was also Dr. Steve Wojcik on Wojcik. It's Polish, so I'm probably not pronouncing that right at all. He was Mr. Smith on Acapulco Heat. He was the narrator on The Matrix, a 1993 short-lived series about a hitman. He was the voice of Wildfire on Wildfire, General Ross on The Incredible Hulk, Rupert Thorne on Batman, and he was Tony Stark slash Iron Man on the 1966 Iron Man cartoon. He also turned up in episodes of Tarzan, Bonanza, Bold Ones, The New Doctors, Mannix, Mission Impossible, Search, Barnaby Jones, The FBI, Ironside, Policewoman, Gunsmoke, Kung Fu, The Invisible Man, SWAT, Cannon, Chips, The A-Team, Auto Man, Fall Guy, Murder, She Wrote, Tales from the Crypt, Doogie Howser, and Renegade. He appeared in the movies Sorority Boys, Mob Story, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, Deadly Stranger, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, a classic, Terminal Exposure, Ernest Goes to Camp, Fraternity Vacation, Chained Heat, Curtains, Airplane 2, Herbie Goes Bananas, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Branigan, and Dirty Harry. And he was in the TV movies Escape, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Solid Gold Kidnapping, the Quester Tapes, Mary Jane Harper Cried Last Night, The Blood of Others, Nightstick, The Woman Who Sinned, The Forget-Me-Not Murders, Hostage for a Day, and Wojek Out of the Fire. Richard Fairburn was played by Davy Martin. He was Daniel Boone on The Magical World of Disney. He also appeared in episodes of Climax, The Twilight Zone, Laramie, Burke's Law, The Outer Limits, I Spy, Lassie, Mannix, Mission Impossible, and Police Story. He appeared in the movies Seven Alone, Flight to Fury, Savage Sam, The Desperate Hours, Prisoner of War, and Thing from Another World. And he was in the TV movies Assault on the Wayne and Wheeler and Murdoch. Maria Sloan was played by Linda Marsh. This is her second of three episodes. We also saw her in Sweet Terror. Neil Porter was played by James Darris. He turned up in episodes of I Spy, The Man from Uncle, F Troop, I Dream of Genie, Bonanza, Star Trek, Mission Impossible, Mannix, and Banachek. He was also in the TV movie Sky Heist. Alicia Anderson, Cal's wife, was played by Diane Morrissey. She's also a panelist on the First Tuesday Book Club. Dr. Landis was played by Grace Albertson. She was Ethel Robinson on Our Private World. She also turned up in episodes of Circus Boy, Thriller, My Three Sons, Dr. Kildare, Hazel, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, Gomer Pyle, Dragnet 67, Ironside, Mission Impossible, Mannix, and Dear John. She appeared in the movie Angel in My Pocket. She was also in the TV movies Call Her Mom and Mooch. Clark Sloan was played by Thomas Norton. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in Samurai. Grace Sloan was played by Anne McCormick. This is her second of three episodes. We also saw her in And They Painted Daisies on His Coffin. Officer Ono was played by William Kiyoho. This is his only credit. 
The nurse was played by Carol Kai. This is her second of six episodes. We also saw her in Tiger by the Tail. And in an uncredited role, Clark Sloan Jr. was played by Joel Berliner. This is his second of two episodes. He was also in Board She Hung Herself, and those are his only credits. Director Paul Krasny only did one episode of Hawaii Five-O, but it's his first directing credit listed on IMDb. He also directed 14 episodes of Mission Impossible, 28 episodes of Mannix, 3 episodes of Chips, 3 episodes of Logan's Run, 7 episodes of Quincy, 4 episodes of Bring Him Back Alive, 3 episodes of Gavilan, 8 episodes of Heart to Heart, 4 episodes of Simon and Simon, 13 episodes of Crazy Like a Fox, 3 episodes of MacGyver, 5 episodes of Moonlighting, and 3 episodes of Pros and Cons. He also has directing credits for the movies Joe Panther and Christina. And he has directing credits for the TV movies Terror Among Us, Time Bomb, Still Crazy Like a Fox, Kojak Ariana, and Kojak Flowers for Maddie, Tag Team, Search and Rescue, and Back to Hannibal, The Return of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And that is Force of Waves. I really do like this episode because it seems very straightforward and then takes that hard left turn. You get to know Cal a little bit and get to really like him. So when you get to that ending, you're as devastated as Steve is when you find out what is going on. And in the meantime, you have Danny taking the lead. You get to watch Maria and Fairburn get their comeuppance. You're, it's more satisfying with Fairburn than it is Maria because you're still on the fence about whether or not she loves her husband or not. But she obviously was trying, in at least in her mind, to do the right thing in the case of Neil. She was trying to help her ex-husband. So you will at least give her that. But Fairburn is obviously capitalizing on this situation as much as possible so he can keep his fat paycheck. So it's really nice to watch him get smacked down by Danny and get arrested very satisfying and the end with cal is pretty brutal but it's so well acted and so well done as bad as you feel for cal it's really really satisfying really give this one a watch you know something then you're a pretty good cop you have any idea when these were taken mr shigano it must have been yesterday I was at uh, all of those places, uh, sightseeing. On your own? No, uh, tour. Trading tours. Did you recognize anyone on the tour or through the day? No. Any idea who might want to kill you? No. No enemies? A man uh, who reaches 60 without uh, making a few enemies, I doubt that has any friends or character. I have enemies, mostly business competitors. None of them will resort to that. What business you in? I'm president of Teletex Corporation, a computer research company. I'm uh, in Hawaii for business reasons. In fact, uh, I am due at the Rikai for one in 20 minutes. Well, until we... Uh... Find out how serious this is. I think you'd better remain at home. Sorry, I must go. Now, if you'll excuse me, I must get my briefcase. Very well. If you insist, I want Mr. Williams to accompany you. Episode 8, The Reunion. 
Air date November 4th, 1970, directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his sixth of 36 episodes and written by Paul Playden. This is his first of three episodes. A tour bus makes a diamond head view stop. A man takes photos of a businessman named Shigato getting laid <laughs> and then later develops them in a dark room. His camera lens was covered with crosshairs, just like the sight on his rifle. 5 is called when Shigato receives the pictures. He doesn't know who took them or who would send them. All of his enemies are business competitors. Steve wants Shigato to stay home, but he insists on leaving as he has an important business meeting to attend. Danny will go with him. Shigato gets in his car with Danny prepared to follow him in his when a half-assed car bomb goes off. The bomb's apparent fail gives Steve and Danny time to get him out of the jammed seatbelt and save him before the bomb completely detonates. While Steve investigates the car bomb, Chen informs him that Kono struck out with the tour company. They only take numbers, not names, and Shikato's tour had 34 tickets sold. Turning their attention to the car bomb, it's discovered that there were, in fact, two bombs in the car. The first was a smoke bomb, and the second was a much bigger explosion. However, neither were meant to kill him. The seatbelt was rigged to trap him for the first bomb, and then release him and allow him to escape just before the second one detonated. This was designed to terrorize him, but it doesn't work. Chigato insists on going to his business meeting. His company needs it. The 15th Airborne is having a reunion at a hotel, and Frank Epstein and Mitch Bradley are drinking at the outdoor bar. Frank is reminiscing about the Philippines, which Mitch absolutely does not want to talk about. The subject changes to photography, a hobby that Mitch has picked up. He took some small pictures on the tour the day before. Frank laughs and points out that his camera is Japanese. His bitterness comes from being disabled in the war. On their way to catch the next tour bus, they spot fellow vet Mike Holt, who comes over to say hi. Mitch greets him, but Frank turns his bitterness on him. Frank then sees Danny escorting Shigato to the hotel. He apparently recognizes him and attacks him. Steve and Kono show up, and Danny introduces Steve to Frank, but Frank seems to know Shigato. He claims that his name is actually Rishiri, and he was the commandant of the POW camp in the Philippines in which Frank, Mitch, and Mike were held. Frank hasn't seen him in 25 years, but he's sure that's him. Mike says it can't be because Rashiri committed suicide as a disgraced Bushido. He failed in his mission to break Frank, Mike, and Mitch, as the three of them had each memorized a piece of coded information, and Rashiri would have had to get all three pieces. Only Mike broke. Mitch endured a lot of torture, and Frank ended up losing his leg. Frank asks Mitch if Shigato is Rashiri, but Mitch is so traumatized by the walk down memory lane that he can't be sure. Steve then asks Chen to bring Shigato into the room. Confronted with him, Mitch still can't be sure. Frank, however, insists it's Rashiri until Mitch breaks and agrees. Steve says they'll check Shigato out, but arrests Frank for assault. Mike offers to walk Mitch back to his room, but he declines. Steve has Kono keep an eye on him. Mike leaves after his alibi is confirmed. Steve then asks Shigato for his fingerprints, as it's the only way to put this whole matter to rest. Chin keeps an eye on Shigato in the lobby, where he's on the phone. After his call, he runs into Mike, who apologizes for the whole sordid affair. Unfortunately, due to this whole mistaken identity fiasco, Shigato has missed out on the business his company so desperately needed, and now his life is in shambles. But he invites Mike to dinner anyway. Outside on the balcony, Mike confronts Shigato. He knows he's Rashiri, and he's been using his own company to ruin him. He wants to see him broken and bleeding. Only it's Mike who ends up that way, killed by a sniper's bullet, and all of the evidence 
points to fellow vet Mitch. Buckle up, kids, because this is a roller coaster, and I mean that in a very good way. We begin with Chicago on a tour with several other tourists. They're taking in the views of Diamond Head. People are taking pictures all around. We see Mitch walk by at one point, but we don't know that's Mitch yet. And someone is taking pictures of Shigato with the crosshairs, which I don't know why, but for me, I really just love the effect that they took this camera lens and scratched that crosshairs on it so it would affect the picture and made it look like a rifle sight. I'm easy to please. Anyway, so those pictures get developed and sent to Shigato, who takes the threat somewhat seriously because 5 is called in because he is a very successful businessman. He's also from the Philippines. He's not a resident, so the governor wants this taken care of quickly and quietly. And they talk to Shigato, who claims to not know who might have done this. The only enemies he has are business competitors. It wouldn't make sense for them to do this. So Steve advises him to stay home, but he decides to leave. And the thing is, is he's perfectly willing to have Danny tag along. That's fine, but he really needs to get to this meeting. So he gets into his car and perhaps maybe the only time we actually see a seatbelt used in a 1970s show. Because cars were required to put seatbelts in, I think starting in the late 60s, but widespread use of them really didn't happen until the law enforced it in like the 80s. So cars had seatbelts, people didn't always use seatbelts, and this is probably the first time that we saw somebody use a seatbelt in this series, and it was specifically for the purpose of trapping him in the car after this car bomb goes off. So he starts the car, the smoke bomb goes off, he's trying to get out, Danny and Steve are trying to help him get out, but the seatbelt's jammed, it releases, they jump out of the car and run off, and the bomb goes off. They actually show when they're investigating this bomb and realize, well, it was a two-part bomb and it was designed to terrorize him, which is like, that would have any normal person shitting themselves. But they show the inside of the seatbelt and how the mechanism was installed to hold him there and release after this spring unwound after 25 seconds. So he was there, he would, would have to, if he had been alone, would have been sitting there contemplating his own demise as he struggled to get out of the seatbelt and then it would finally release and he'd be able to get himself free. So, I mean, maximum terror effort. Jigsaw would be pleased. But Chicago is a dedicated businessman. He needs to get to this meeting because his company is in some trouble and he needs this business loan. So he needs to go talk to these people who will get that for him. And so again, Danny goes with him. We then go to the hotel that Shigato will be arriving at and we get to see the 15th Airborne reunion. It is a lot of older men in Aloha shirts chatting and laughing and drinking. And we meet Frank and Mitch at the bar. And Mitch is prodding Frank because he doesn't want to be late for the next tour and he wants Frank to go with him, but Frank wants one more drink. And you get a pretty quick impression of Frank and Mitch's personalities in that Mitch seems very sweet and a bit timid and Frank is brash and he's bitter and he's a bit of a bully. And you get that real quickly between the two of them.
Sir Walt let you forget about long time. Stop it, Frank, please. Okay, okay, new subject. New subject, yeah. Okay, what's his hobby? You know hobby, Mitch? Yes, I, I, I'm not very good at it. Uh, picture postcard stuff mostly, but <laughs> that's me. But, uh, but I got some fantastic shots on the tour yesterday. Uh, at least I hope they turn out that way. <laughs> <laughs> So they go downstairs to catch the next tour because Mitch really wants Frank to go and they happen to see fellow vet Mike Holt who comes over and greets them and Frank turns his bitterness on him and you're not exactly sure why. At first you kind of suspect, well, it's because of the war Frank was disabled and therefore his options post-World War II were limited. And Mike is dressed like a businessman in a sea of Aloha shirts. So he obviously has done very well for himself. And you think maybe that's part of it because Mitch obviously doesn't hold these sorts of feelings for Mike. He likes Mike and Mike obviously likes Mitch. They make arrangements to have a drink later and Mitch thanks him for helping him out with his gas station. And Mike claims to not know what he's talking about. And again, Frank finds an opportunity to be a dick. Why'd you do it, Holt? Charity or guilt? I'll forget that I heard that. So there's obvious tension between the two of them, as well as Mitch kind of being put in the middle because he does like Frank, even though Frank is kind of a dick, and he does like Mike, even though there's something a little snobbish about Mike. We see Dano escorting Shigato through this reunion to get to the hotel, get inside the hotel, and Frank loses his mind. Now, I think the implication is is that Frank's lost his leg and he's got a prosthetic, because I think they do say something about Rashiri cutting his leg off. The actor playing Frank is Simon Oakland. Simon Oakland is not disabled. He has both of his legs. So he's pretending to have a prosthetic. And he uses two crutches to help him get around. He goes after Shigato because he thinks that he Rashiri comes up behind him and like clobbers him with both of the crutches while screaming his name. And of course, Dano takes him down. So you're like, what the hell is going on here? So obviously Steve is called in. And what we have is a very long scene in a conference room. And it is, it's quite a long scene. A lot of it is filled with exposition to explain exactly what's going on and explain the pasts of these three vets and everything. But it's just so well done and it's the acting is so well done that you don't see it as an info dump. There is something very dramatic and intense happening just in that room. There's very little action or movement required. And what the basics of it is, is that Frank, Mitch, and Mike were all held captive in a POW camp in the Philippines. So now you know why Mitch doesn't want to talk about the Philippines. Frank claims that Shigato is the commandant of this POW camp, and his name was Rashiri. It is a really intense scene because Frank is absolutely certain. However, Mike, who is this professional businessman and very logical and very reasonable, says it can't be because Rashiri committed suicide ritualistic suicide because he failed in his mission of breaking them. In that scene, you get a real glimpse of the trauma that the men have gone through and the PTSD that they suffer as a result and how they deal with that trauma. Because it's insinuated that Mike got the least of it and that's why he's able to, to leave the war and go on and be successful. 
He said that Rashiri identified all of their strengths and weaknesses and capitalized on them. And he says that Mitch had a brilliant mind and so he broke Mitch down. He knew Frank wanted to be a pro football player, so he cut off Frank's leg. And so you kind of get the understanding that while Frank went through a lot of physical torture, Mitch went through a hell of a lot of mental torture and that's why he is the way that he is. And you're seeing how they deal with that, where Mitch is doing the best that he can the way he is now, and he's got his little gas station, he pumps gas for a living when he was going to be an architect, he was going to be an engineer. And Frank is just a real bitter son of a bitch. But it's a very powerful, intense telling of how this all came about. And what did he find out about you, pal? I wouldn't deprive you of this moment for anything in the world, Frank. Do this to regard yourself. Nothing! Because he broke. He spilled his guts to save his lousy life. Your Sherry didn't even have to lay a finger on him. So you find out that Mike broke, but because Rashiri needed all three pieces of information and only Mike gave up his, he still failed in his mission. Mike insists that's why he committed suicide, whereas Frank is absolutely sure that Shigato was Rashiri. And there's this really great part when Steve asks Frank, when was the last time you saw Rashiri? February 17, 1945. It was sunset. They had just lowered their flag for the last time. And as a final gesture, Rashiri ordered one of us hung from the flagpole. Does that fix the time for you? Just in that sense, that fixes the amount of trauma in your mind. What Frank's gone through, what Mitch has gone through, and what Mike has gone through. But of course, Shigato completely denies being Rashiri. Mike also says it's not Rashiri. Frank is insistent. Mitch is the tiebreaker. Mitch can't say so. Even when he's confronted with Shigato at first, he can't say so because he's literally so traumatized by this. He's just on the brink of a nervous breakdown. And Frank kind of starts bullying him into seeing it. He pulls back his tone and tries again. He coaxes him basically into looking over and seeing him. So you can't be sure that Mitch truly believes that's Rashiri because of the way Frank is, is talking to him and coaching him into his mental state. And I should point out that when all three of them are first brought in to that conference room to talk about Frank attacking Shigato, given the, the history of what's going on with Shigato, which Steve knows, but the other three apparently don't know, he's now looking at them as possible suspects. And so he checks out Mike's alibi and he checks out Mitch's alibi. And this is when we are reminded that Mitch was on Shigato's tour because he admits to it. He says, yes, I was on the Tradewinds tour yesterday. Steve points out to his camera, he's like, I guess you, you're a photographer. And he's like, yeah, it's, it's my hobby. Frank gets really frustrated because he's like, why are you quizzing all of us? This is a war criminal. Why are you doing this to us? And that's how we get into talking about why Frank thinks that he's Rashiri and what Rashiri did. So when Mitch leaves, he is obviously in a state but declines Mike going with him to his room. He just wants to go lay down is what he says. So Steve has Kono follow him and keep an eye on him. Then Mike's alibi checks out. He was still in LA and he's allowed to go. Frank is arrested for the assault, which he's real pleased about. And Shigato is really upset about all of this because he's missing his business meeting. Steve insists that he give him his fingerprints because that is the only way they're going to be able to convince Frank that he's not Rashiri because fingerprints don't change. Shigato agrees to it. And then we see him later out in the lobby trying to salvage this business loan, which apparently doesn't go well. But Chin is keeping an eye on him, of course, because, you know, still threats on his life. He runs into Mike 
and Mike apologizes for everything that's happened. Shigato says his life is in shambles now. And then Shigato invites him to dinner, which you think is kind of a little odd, but I guess he's trying to show that there's no hard feelings between him and Mike. They walk out to the balcony and pause. And that's when things take an immediate turn. So it turns out that Mike knew that Shigato was Rashiri the whole time and has been using his business to destroy his business and to destroy his life. That would be why he wouldn't want 5-0 to know that he knew who Rashiri was is because he's not done torturing him, basically. And then we go for the next twist, which is we see the sniper with his rifle leaning over the balcony and aiming at Mike and Rashiri. And you think they're aiming at Rashiri, but Mike is the one who's shot. Chin, of course, runs over to assist Mike and Kono kicks open the door of Mitch's room and Mitch is sitting at the table like in a stupor. And they conclude, because all of this evidence is suddenly found in Mitch's room, that Mitch was the one doing this. Mitch works at a gas station. He knows how to work on cars. He was on the Trade Winds tour with Shigato. The gun is found in his room. It must be him. But Steve doesn't like things when they're very neat like that. He's always suspicious when things just kind of tie up in a nice little bow. So he's not quite ready to fully throw his weight behind Mitch being the killer or the shooter. At that time, the shooter, because Mike was still alive. But he still has him arrested. And then later when Mike dies in surgery, the charge is upgraded to first degree murder. I would think that they would, if they actually went to court, they would plead that charge down because even if he had planned to murder Rashiri slash Shigato and missed, because as they said, the doctor said that Mitch, that the reason why he hit his friend was that he's farsighted and he has a trimmer in his hand. And that's why he hit Mike and not Rashiri. Even then, I would think that you could probably argue that yes, he meant to kill someone else, but he killed his friend instead. You could probably make a convincing argument to get that charge reduced if you had a really good lawyer. I'm just saying. But that's neither here nor there. Anyway, Mitch is in jail. Frank gets released from jail. And Frank goes to visit Mitch. And they have a very interesting, revealing conversation. Hey, Frank. Frank worked to save our lives. Not his own. What? After the first month, Rashiri knew we were going to be difficult to break. But his superiors progress. Shuri's neck was on the line. He told Holt this. Told him he'd execute us if Holt didn't break. But with us dead, he couldn't possibly have gotten the information. Rashiri was bluffing, bitch! Maybe. But if he didn't break, there was nothing to lose to execute us. Maybe he did trick Mike. But Mike loved us. Sure, he knew that was his weakness and he played on it. So, Frank has spent all of these years 20 plus two years, 25 years hating Mike because he thought Mike was weak and Mike broke to save his own skin. When, according to Mitch, he actually broke to save them. That was his weakness that Mike loved them, would do anything to save them. And Frank just can't handle that truth. But he's invited to go up to 5-0 headquarters because, hey, the fingerprints are in. And it turns out that according to the fingerprints, Shigato is not Rashiri. So Frank has to accept this evidence as it's given to him. And he gives a half-hearted apology and he leaves. And then Shigato leaves. 
and it looks very much so like this has all just been a tragic case of mistaken identity by two traumatized war vets and it's just ended catastrophically. So they're examining the evidence that was taken from Mitch's room including all of the pictures that were taken with the crosshair camera. And in one of the pictures, because Steve is still not convinced about any of this, that it's just all tying into neatly and just it doesn't sit well with him. And he's looking at the pictures that were developed from this camera, the film in this camera, and he spots Mitch in one of the pictures that Mitch supposedly took. And we're not talking about a selfie. We're talking about he is in the background of one of these pictures. Well, there's the camera that was taken from Mitch that he current that he had when he was talking in the conference room. So it's got film in it. Che Fong develops that film because they believe they can find the real cameraman who took that picture in there, and they do. And it turns out that he is a hired gun that they know. His name's Lacuna. They go to go talk to him, but in the meantime, Lacuna calls Frank at the hotel and says, hey, I've got some information on who really killed Mike Holt. Why don't you meet me at this location? Now, I'm not going to spoil how these meetings turn out, but I will tell you this. This is one hell of a long game. But you know who's not playing games? This guest cast, they are straight up on the level of excellence. So let's take a look at them. As I said, Frank Epstein was played by Simon Oakland. This is his second of five episodes. We also saw him in Strangers in Our Own Land. Michael Holt was played by Barry Atwater. This is his first of three episodes. He also turned up in episodes of Mr. Lucky, The Twilight Zone, The Rebel, Wagon Train, The Donna Reed Show, Perry Mason, Bonanza, Rawhide, The Man from Uncle, Wild Wild West, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Star Trek, Gunsmoke, Mod Squad, Night Gallery, Mannix, Ironside, Police Story, Canon, Harry O, and The Rockford Files. He appeared in the movies The Teacher, Return of the Gunfighter, Alvarez Kelly, Battle at Bloody Beach, Porkchop Hill, The Hard Man, and Nightmare. And he was in the TV movies, Along Came a Spider, The Night Stalker, with Simon Oakland, and The Amazing Howard Hughes. Mitch Bradley was played by Joe Moross. He was Fred Russell on Peyton Place, and Captain Mike Benton on Code Red. He was also Dr. Blakely on Dallas. He also turned up in episodes of Mr. Lucky, Thriller, The Twilight Zone, Wagon Train, Stony Burke, with Jack Lord. Perry Mason, The Outer Limits, Gunsmoke, The Fugitive, Time Tunnel, The Invaders, The Virginian, Ironside, Mission Impossible, Banachek, The Magician, Canon, Emergency, Charlie's Angels, Wonder Woman, The Rockford Files, BJ and the Bear, The Fall Guy, and Murder, She Wrote. And he appeared in the movies Rich and Famous, Sixth and Main, The Salzburg Connection, Zigzag, Elmer Gantry, and Run Silent, Run Deep. Shigato was played by Teru Shimada. He also turned up in episodes of Hawaiian Eye, The Islanders, Hazel, The Man from Uncle, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Perry Mason, I Spy, Mannix, Family Affair, Barnaby Jones, and The Six Million Dollar Man. He appeared in the movies Savage Justice, You Only Live Twice, One Spy Too Many, and The Wackiest Ship in the Army. He was also in an episode of the TV show. Battle of the Coral Sea, The Snow Creature, and Revolt of the Zombies. And he has uncredited roles in the 1953 version of The War of the Worlds, Batman the Movie, and Run Silent, Run Deep with Joe Moroth. Lacuna was played by Dawes Dawson. This is his second of four episodes. We also saw him in Savage Sunday. 
Our writer was Paul Playden. In addition to three episodes of Hawaii Five-0, he also has writing credits for five episodes of Combat, four episodes of Garrison's Gorillas, two episodes of Daniel Boone, two episodes of Lancer, three episodes of The Wild Wild West, 14 episodes of Mission Impossible, four episodes of Canon, three episodes of The Magician, and three episodes of Switch. He also has writer and develop for TV credits for Chips, and he has writing credits for the TV movies Escape, Visions, Beg, Borrow, or Steal, and The Mask of Alexander Cross. And that is the reunion. Absolute roller coaster ride of an episode. Just so many layers to it. Very intense, emotional. Our four main guest actors in this episode do just a phenomenal job with the emotional weighted material that they're given. They're all four playing veterans of the same war. Three on one side, one on the other but none of them came out unscathed. And I think particularly at a time when this was written, when this aired, the Vietnam War was still happening. I think they're putting out an important message that you don't get out of war unscathed. Just a great episode. Give it a watch. Where are the rubber hoses? Great sense of humor, Mr. Epstein. And that is episode 30 of Bookum Dano. Two fantastic episodes, both with a whole lot of layers and twists happening, intriguing from the beginning to the end. Just really great stuff that's grounded in just enough reality that they don't ever go over the top. So I hope you do watch them, and I hope you do enjoy them, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate your ears. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano and all of my podcasting adventures, as well as all of my rerun junkie thoughts. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you need my glowing reviews of Steve McGarrett's off-duty wardrobe in real time, you can get that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So keep your boats in good repair and keep your seatbelts fastened for the entire ride. Until next time, aloha!